The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. You wanted the best. You got the best. The hottest podcast in the world. Wizards. Two men with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book booth, now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 87 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics, the podcast where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. For this episode, I'm passing the mic to Paul Stanley from KISS to do my intro. Take it away, Paul. Oh, and did I mention? I'm Adam. And I'm over here wondering who exactly Paul Stanley is. Is he the cat guy? The star guy? I know he's not the demon. I need some education, Adam. I'm Michael Schwartz. And joining us this time around is a man who's had a chronic case of rock and roll pneumonia for decades. A case so severe that Dr. Love couldn't even cure it. But more than being a KISS fan, he's also the co-host of the Purple Stuff podcast, a very popular institution that helps us grown-up kids of the 80s and 90s look back fondly on our childhoods. He's also the proprietor of SludgeCentral.com and the proudest New Jersey native since Bruce Willis, Bon Jovi, and Joe Piscopo. It's Jay Ryan. How you doing, Jay? Hey, guys, thanks for having me on. This is so cool. You know, I, I never get a chance to do these, but, you know, it's just so cool to be here. And I appreciate you having me on. Uh, you mentioned, you know, Kiss and all this stuff is is my life as it is yours. So, you know, I, I feel like... I fit in perfectly with you guys here. Yeah, we're going to have a lot to talk about. And I do want to mention, though, this episode is a long time coming because when I was looking forward you know, to the next year and I saw we had a KISS-related issue of the magazine on the schedule, I made sure to secure Jay as our guest. And that was like a year ago, so... <laughs> I, I think it's so cool when, you know, like you reach out to me for something like this, because believe it or not, you know, I think people think it just gets lost on you. But like when people ask me like, hey, you know, kiss or Halloween or comics or whatever, I love, of course. Yeah, I'm, I'm in. Yeah, and so we're glad to have you. I know you're going to have a lot to say about the hottest band in the world, uh, but this is our Halloween issue. Like you said, for 1998, we're a little out of season. Mike and I were talking about this uh, <laughs> earlier. We were like, yeah, I guess we, we could sync things up a little bit better. But this is something that is special to me because on the Purple Stuff podcast, every year, Jay and his uh, co-host, Matt, they do a Halloween playlist of songs. And that is what I listen to when I'm decorating my house and my yard for Halloween. Plus, Jay does these Halloween specials uh, over the years. He's done so many fun things on his YouTube channel, so you can check those out. They bring a smile to my face every October. <laughs> I'm mostly excited to get an education in KISS. It really, it, I, it's been a long time coming, so you guys will be good teachers, I'm sure. Absolutely. But Jay, before we get into the, you know, the creepiness and the KISS factor here, we need to go back to the beginning and hear your origin story.
my first introduction to comics, I think, was my sister bought me a comic book. She came back from the mall. And of course, like, you know, you mentioned the Jersey thing. Like, yeah, that's what everybody did around here because it's not like your party. Like, if you're in California, maybe you'd be at the pier, you know, you'd be doing something cool. Like, you'd be the Lost Boys hanging out with <laughs> vampires. But by us, you know, people, they would just go to the mall. So she came back with a comic book it was a batman issue and i remember it had batman and robin on the cover and there was like bats behind it and to me it was the best of both worlds because i already loved horror when i was a really little kid so it was like batman meets vampires i i need to read this you know so that was my first introduction when i was really really little uh and then of course just completely snowballed out of control ever since you know and then kiss was a, a, a simple kind of introduction as well i was at my neighbor's house up the street and he was a big fan of collecting music and of course i was really really young i was a super little kid you know i might have been three years old or something and i just remember looking at his album covers and he had the album alive too which was the second live album right so when you opened it up it was like a gatefold and you were able to look at all the pictures and i remember so vividly seeing gene simmons picture where he had all this blood just dripping down his face and he looked like a complete monster and that was my i just right then and there it was i was fascinated completely in love and then i looked up and i realized he had the album's like displayed all at the top of like the wall right on these shelves and that's when i saw dressed to kill and they were dressed in suits and they scared me you know it totally scared me before i even knew or put together the fact that they made music and they sang rock and roll all night like that is these guys this is completely insane and my mind exploded then and there yeah. i mean it's funny like it's similar and yet so different for me because like the scare factor like being scared of kiss was definitely like in high school i had a class he wasn't a friend just yet but we had a math class together every day he was wearing kiss shirts he's wearing aussie shirts but mostly kiss and yeah. i was like who are these devil worshipers <laughs> guy? And yeah like, you don't even understand and so like one day we had a substitute it's like i don't care what you guys do today and he brought a cd player with computer speakers in his backpack that's all he had that day he plugs yeah. it in he plays destroyer for me the kiss album destroyer and i'm like wait these guys made this music especially when it got to beth just a Okay, yeah, let, me, exactly. let me look into this a little bit more. And so he started loading me his CDs. I got, yeah, you wanted the best, you got the best like live compilation CD he lent me for the summer. When I came back, we started a band. Of course, we were playing Kiss songs. We eventually played Psycho Circus live and all sorts of That's stuff. So, so like, cool. I was all in and that was every birthday, every Christmas. Everybody knew, oh, Adam's the Kiss guy now. Exactly. You know here, when, you're the, when you're the Kiss guy, if you meet another Kiss fan, you're friends for life. Every single time mike yeah. i'm curious you've talked to me previously saying you've had some exposure but who in your life is the kiss guy or where have you been you know brought uh kiss on a silver platter i haven't my my dad wasn't into kiss i don't know maybe a cousin was but i, I wasn't exposed to it this is why i i don't know anything about them it just whatever was in wizard that's that and mcfarland toys i have no other knowledge of kiss like i kind of got into like punk and alternative so i was like really into nine inch nails and marilyn manson and i remember in circus magazine you'd see kiss 
and I liked the pictures, but when I heard one song, I was like, this is not matching up. The look didn't match with the sound. And I think I was expecting like a Marilyn Manson type of vibe or something. I don't know what I was expecting. It just wasn't it. And I ignored it from there on out. It was like, oh, I'll just pass. Yeah, it's like, I feel like when you guys mentioned that about the difference in the tone of the music, when I was in high school, sometimes, you know, people would look at me like I was like, oh, he's the Knights and Satan service guy, you know? <laughs> but then my friend would say to me, it's like, you know, when I first heard Kiss, it sounded like, I thought it was like Tiny Tim. He's like, ding, 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 ding. <laughs> and like, you guys are saying the same thing. And like, for me, I understand it. It's just, I guess I was so ingrained in it when I was real young that it wasn't a contrast for me. I had heard that before I heard stuff like later on, like Manson or, you know, bands that are hard or stuff like that. But it was just me. It's It was like, it felt like me. So I, I was so into it. Oh, well, this is great, you know, and I feel like if Mike in his uh, Canadian town had suddenly put on Kiss makeup and showed up to school one day, it would have been front page of the local paper uh, and people would have been writing in, who is this child? What is he doing? So we are going to find out who was writing in to Wizard and sending in their opinions and ideas as we open up Willie Lumpkin's Mailbag. All right, now, Jay, it is well documented that you were also an unabashed pro wrestling fan from way back. And it seems that Jim McLaughlin, who was the guy answering all the letters sent into readers and wizard, he might have been too. So I want to check out his response to uh, a reader named Kyle Salbert of Lake Zurich, Illinois, who asks, Dear Jimmy, how can an ordinary guy like me get a hold of Todd McFarlane? And Jim McLaughlin's response, there are many ways. A sleeper hold is always good. Hammerlocks also work nicely when you're looking to get a hold of someone, but I'd recommend the step over toe hold. It's easy to apply to someone, and if they give you any lip, you can break their ankle from this position. Give it a try and uh, let me know how it went. Oh, classic wizard humor here. But I want to ask here before we get into uh, a question I have for Jay, Mike, are you or were you a wrestling fan? I should not even be on this episode. I didn't I did not watch wrestling. I had I had one WWF figure. Uh you know those big rubber ones. Yeah. That's it. That is my exposure to wrestling. Just pass the mic to, to Jay. Just take over, Jay. I don't know why I'm here. That's <laughs> perfect. But Jay, I want to ask you. As far as, you know, they're talking about here what holds to use, right? And there are a lot of, like, finishing holds or signature moves in pro wrestling. Do you have a favorite? Yeah, that was a loaded question because I could <laughs> honestly do a whole, like, a whole entire episode on finishing moves, right? But yeah. there are, there's some, and it's a good question because we all, as wrestling fans, you know, you have your favorites. You know, I have a long list of favorites, but I always felt like the ones that were different than the usual. So, obviously, you know, you know like Hulk Hogan would drop his leg on the guy. You know, it wasn't a fan move you know but it was effective and you anticipated it right so the anticipation factor was big of course you know i'm very i'm a huge fan of alexa bliss she's a female wrestler who's out for she's having a baby now but she has a great finishing maneuver where she jumps off the top rope and like twists in the air and they call it twisted bliss i i really like that i think it's fun you know and it 
it brings me back to the high flying moves like randy savage dropping the elbow drop to me nobody could drop an elbow drop like randy savage you know but i also like the real simple ones like seth rollins he'll give you a curb stomp where he just stomps your head into the mat very simple but i love it and i always love tito santana's flying forearm which is like probably the most underrated finishing maneuver of all time uh, but I, i'll i'll finish i'll give you my answer my answer honestly the kill switch christian christian cage that's like my favorite finishing move i believe ever. Can, can you describe it for mike so he can have a vision? yeah so you kind of take the guy's arms his back is to your back you take the guy's arms and twist them around and you kind of drop them on his head uh i might be describing that wrong it's kind of like that you smash his head into the mat <laughs> but it's I'm just sure, so cool you know i'm sure i was forced to watch some wrestlemania with my neighbors who were big fans so that that move sounds very familiar to me so yeah you might have seen it yeah, <laughs> yeah. christian i believe is is canadian he's a fellow canadian yeah so you may have been familiar he, he could be my cousin yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I wanted to say jay so my friends and i we were wcw fans in the 90s you know right. like, like i was always amazed by the flock and like what raven was doing with his group of weirdos and for some reason i really got attached to billy kidman mm. so kidman was there and he did he just did like a moonsault but i had yes. never seen a moonsault before so i was just like what is this move yeah yeah <laughs> And and I, I mean, describe it as kind of like you go like on the middle rope of the three ropes and you flip yourself backwards like you just do a full flip backwards onto your opponent well you know why it's so impressive because i see that stuff i can't do that as i mean i'm semi-athletic and i could actually still move around for an old man i can't do that speaking yeah, of wrestling and fighting something that causes a lot of fighting and and i'm sure could lead to wrestling in my household is kicking off this halloween discussion in this issue rizard went ran a poll asking their aol users what is the crappiest halloween candy this is a huge fight within my household and i'm, I'm really glad we brought this up here so uh, black licorice won by an overwhelming margin with 49% of the vote, while circus peanuts got 17%. Candy corn was right behind with 14%. And something called peanut chews garnered 11%. Finally, rock candy and now and laters tied with 3% each leaving the other category with 3% to round things out. So my wife is a huge fan of black licorice and candy corn. So she would be furious even hearing this podcast right now. So I need to know, Jay, what detestable Halloween candy would you add to the list? Well, you mentioned now and laters. I'm not into like stuff like that because it'll break your teeth. I also yeah. don't like stuff that gets like stuck in your teeth. So anything that's like, you know, really chewy. I mean, I'm just not into any of that. I'm not a big candy person in general, but I don't have hate for candy corn. Just want to get that. I like candy corn, but I did write some uh, notes. I don't like black licorice. <laughs> I don't like Mary Jane's. I, I know this is going to be controversial, but I'm not a big caramel fan some people say caramel I, I just don't like caramel like especially when it's hard like i i don't i don't know if it's like sugar daddies or whatever i don't anything like that i'm not into I, i'm just traditional like reese's cups snickers you know stuff like that you know skittles any kind of normal candy that you get in those multi-packs like m&ms give me all the traditional stuff and i'm happy everything yeah. else ah 
I don't need it. <laughs> Are you a black licorice guy, Adam? I am not. My my dad, I remember buying it. He liked it. And so we'd have it in the house. And I was just like, man, I don't need to be near this stuff. Like, just get me away. Like, Smell is so bad. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, I definitely agree with that. Although, like, I have to say, like, now and laters, like, should not be on the list because I love them. Like, <laughs> now and laters were huge in my area growing up. I had a friend who bought an entire jar, like, before there was Costco, you know, in his price club, you know, it was where we shopped. Yeah. Oh, God. So he bought like a huge one and he was like playing double dragon all night eating those. And it like the acid in those like split his tongue. Like it was like gross. You're like, oh, like you can't eat that many. I learned my lesson. It was like a an urban legend that I witnessed, you know. <laughs> Certainly, this is something that would have made a headline if, if it was declared that there was one terrible Halloween candy that no one was allowed to enjoy anymore. You know, it was recalled because everybody voted it was terrible. But we're going to find out what was going on in the headlines with... So, our top story in Wizard News this issue, Todd reshuffles comic line in 1999. Also, how nice is it to just be able to be Todd, right? You don't have to have a last name, your share, your everybody, you know, everybody knows you. He announces that with the success of the Kiss, the Psycho Circus, more on that in a bit, comic book, Todd McFarlane is adding new titles to his publishing schedule, which marketing director Bo Smith is giving Wizard the scoop on. So, first up, James O'Barr's The Crow will, quote, become a monthly, full-color comic focusing on The Crow, as seen in two movies and a current TV series, and James gets approval over everything and as much input as he wants. The series will be written by John J. Muth and have a rotating art team between issues. So, Mike, I know you took a look at this series like I did, what did you think and jay i'm curious to hear where you fall like in terms of have you read the crow comics do you like the movies but mike what did you think of this particular series they were bringing out i, I kind of liked it i feel like it it borrowed bits from the original series like i was confused about timeline at first like i was like is this new is this i i, I need to read a lot more but i i felt like it got the tone down for me I, I just found it a bit confusing timeline-wise. That, would, that yeah, was my biggest because they complaint. were basically just retelling the original story, but a little bit mixed up. It, it was the kind of influence from the movie, though. I felt more yes. movie influences, it, whereas, like, the comic, it's like the movie's influence from the comic, and now this new comic's influence from the movie. It was very bizarre yeah, triangle we have going I, I on I do there. say the fact that they go full color takes a lot away from it though because the original comic being in black and white being you know very goth very all of that like you lose that if you're putting color into the mix like you want it to be that stark and that serious and and i i don't know like i thought it was fine but it did grab me the way the original did but jay where do you fall on the crow so i was really into the film never really read the comics i probably own the comics but i never if I read them, I don't remember. But the uh, other movies, like the sequels and all the other stuff, I never got into. So I think it was more about the fact that Bruce Lee's son was in this new kind of cool gothic superhero movie, which, you know, I felt like that was really cool in itself for me. But I think that took over. You know, I wasn't necessarily in love with the character. But I liked Brandon Lee at the time, you know? He was very cool in that movie. He did yeah. a great job. If you're going to go out on a performance, it's like Heath Ledger and the Joker, right? It's Absolutely. just, wow, there's iconic. Yeah. Everybody's going to remember it. Yeah. And the soundtrack. Is so, oh, the soundtrack fantastic. was so good. Yeah. Yeah. 
Now, next up, another rock and roll comic is on the slate starring Ozzy Osbourne. Now, according to the writer of the one shot, Paul Jenkins, quote, we set him up as a raving nutter, a complete loon who loves pushing other people's buttons. He's a madman who enjoys getting everyone riled up. Uh, that was pretty good, by the way. Nice. You need to get a little... <laughs> I don't usually do the British accents, but I might start. If either of you guys have read this comic, I'll give you some devil horns. You know, we'll give you a little bit of that. But I want to ask more importantly, have either of you guys seen Ozzy live or have you been to an Ozfest festival? Like, tell me, like, where are you at with Ozzy? Uh, No, there was no uh, Oz. I don't think Ozfest came to Canada. So that was our biggest issue. He's been here recently. He's toured many times through. I just never had a chance. I I liked Ozzy. Like, I I think I was more Ozzy than Kiss, right? I I gravitated Mm -hmm. towards him. But no. And this comic, honestly, I didn't even know it existed until I read the show notes. Yeah, I never read the comic. Uh, I mean, I'm a fan of Ozzy, of course. And one of my friends actually was really obsessed with that comic and thought it was amazing. But yeah, I don't even, I don't even really really remember getting into it. I went to see Ozfest twice. So I did get to see Ozzy, you know, uh, and of course I'm a fan of Black Sabbath. So uh, yeah, really just cool that they did it. And I felt like that was a big time. You know, when you had Kiss's popularity at the time, especially spilling over to comic books, the other guys are getting the, the action too. So that was cool. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'll say my buddy who got me into Kiss, so he starts indoctrinating me into everything heavy metal, right? So he's loading me Black Sabbath CDs and Aussie CDs. We're driving in his car to go get tacos and we're listening, you know, to all these bands. We eventually go to OzFest in uh, 98 and that was... I went to that one, yeah. That's, okay. Yeah, that's the... Black Sabbath was reformed, right? They... Yeah. In addition to the Aussie comic, McFarlane had also recently purchased the entire back catalog of the defunct Eclipse comics and was reimagining the Black Terror as a secret U.S. government agent assigned to protect the president, but finds he just may have to assassinate him when it's discovered that the Prez is owned by the mob. Sounds like a 90s action thriller, doesn't it, guys? Finally, Todd is transforming the Curse of the Spawn book into a Sam and Twitch title that's described as an ugly X-Files book with the boys going up against sick, twisted criminals like you saw in the movie Seven. Pretty good deal for the detectives who would occasionally show up in Spawn stories to get their own title. Looking at this list, which of these books would you guys be most interested in reading now? Or did you read them at the time? What do you think, Jay? Yeah, I I think the one where they're going to, like, it's kind of like the X-Files one. That sounds pretty appealing to me. I wasn't much into those characters necessarily, but that like anything, if you say anything like investigating uh, supernatural, paranormal or aliens, you know, unexplained, I love all that kind of stuff. So that would be my pick. Well, and that, that's the ironic thing. You know, I'm doing this 90s podcast. Spawn was always around. I was always seeing it in the store. I was seeing it in Wizard, but I never picked up an issue of Spawn. It just didn't appeal to me. But later on, the Sam and Twitch book, there was a trade that got released and it was all in black and white. Like it, it was a real, again, I must like these black and white comics. I don't know. But I was reading it. And I was just like, it was about these guys in trench coats who were like water balloon people was the first <laughs> mystery they were solving. And, you know, they would explode if you shot them. You know, it was so weird. But but I just, I, I really got into the Sam and Twitch characters of the Spawn universe. That's what appealed to me most. So yeah, that's funny because I, I was collecting Spawn and Curse of Spawn, but then I... I dropped it immediately once it became Sam and Twitch. 
Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> now, following the huge promotion in Wizard for Joe Kelly and Stephen T. Siegel as the new writers of Marvel's biggest selling books, X-Men and Uncanny X-Men, X-Writers Out announces that the pair have already tendered their resignations to Marvel Editor-in-Chief Bob Harris after just a handful of issues under their belts. Says Joe Kelly under the decision, quote, We didn't feel our input was listened to enough, so we decided to go in separate directions. But it was a totally friendly break, and fans should know that. Now, Alan Davis was set up to take on the writing of the plots for both titles as of X-Men number 85. Harris explains, quote, Alan will orchestrate the X crossover scheduled for early 1999, which is apparently not what uh, Siegel and Kelly were interested in participating in. But meanwhile, Joe Kelly's going to continue to write the very popular Deadpool, while Siegel will write an X-Men graphic novel penciled by Astro City's Brent Anderson and pen a new Vertigo project called Big World at DC with Mike Allred, which does not come out, unfortunately. And they, they actually do collaborate later. There's this really cool book called Vertical, which literally is a vertical comic book and it's really slender it's i don't know it's pretty fun now we've heard from a lot of x-men fans they were very disappointed by the departure of these writers so early into their run they thought there was going to be a lot going on jay real quick x-men for you were you into x-men did you stay with batman like who who was your favorite yeah so i did there was a period of time i mean obviously batman was always number one for me but i did get into x-men pretty heavily that time frame in the late 80s when the like the 89 uh, Batman movie came out every other character was also getting popular it's kind of like what we said about Ozzy before so X-Men just was that new cool thing and then you know a little bit later they got their own cartoon and you know so there was a whole thing I, I really enjoyed X-Men I liked X-Force I like a lot of the characters like offshoot characters so I did get into it I would say two or three years before the cartoon even came out Oh, okay. So now the other thing here they're talking about is, you know, people being upset when your favorite writer, you know, the people who are taking these characters you care about, you're like, oh, this is going great. And then they leave. Mike, can you think of a, a situation outside of maybe the Sam and Twitch situation where you were disappointed by the change in a creative team or the direction of a comic? Let me apply it to this time period that this issue's from uh, Spawn. I was constantly annoyed. Like eventually, like they lost Greg Capullo. And I think they got the artist from Psycho Circus, which we'll be talking about soon. And I, I, I hated that change. Like that to me, that, that killed the book for me. But I kept collecting anyways. There's a lot of books like that, like even current comics where I'm just like, what? We got five issues with this team and then they're gone? It's hard to keep those creative people, you know, on the track. I, I will say for me, I mean, I think everybody's going to guess this who's listened to the show before, but it was Gen 13. Like mm. J. Scott Campbell gets all the credit for making that book what it was. And as soon as he was god it was just like ooh, like this this doesn't have the same appeal anymore and, and as much as i'm mo mostly a story guy but then i realized oh there wasn't a story <laughs> they weren't trying hard enough it was just cool art that was one of the few books that won me over just for art so uh, speaking of which mike our next article evangeline and more resurface at awesome reports that after two years absent from comic book shelves evangeline uh, by Rob Liefeld will be returning in a new series written by Alan Moore and published by Awesome Entertainment. This must have been a surprise to readers since just a few months earlier, the company had to cancel the majority of their titles and let go of all the talent they had hired due to a loss of their financial backing. Teasing the Warrior Angel's return, Rob explains, We're treating her disappearance like real time. In the comic, she hasn't been seen in two years. When we see her, she's in bad shape. It'll be a shock to see how much she's been beaten down. I was about to do a, a Rob Liefeld impression, but I, I, I decided I'd butcher it. So. <laughs> Here's the thing. So I looked into this 
It got one issue. Alan Moore did not write it. And there is no explanation of her being beaten down or going through hard times. She looks super hot in cutoff jean shorts and a tank top in a garden in a double page spread when you see the issue. And you're just like, again, Rob, what are you telling us? Oh, none of it's true. Oh, that's not a surprise. (laughs) (laughs) Jay, what's your connection to Rob Liefeld's comic work? Did you read any of it? You know, it's it's strange because this is one of those things where as a kid, I wasn't as particular. And I guess I, I'm i sure I had favorite artists and uh, creators at the time, but I, I didn't think it was that much of a big deal because you're always expecting characters to look exciting and larger than life and explosive, just like, you know, ripped and all this. But I remember uh, one of my best friends loved Liefeld's art and, and characters and everything. I'm like, oh, you know, okay, it's another, just another guy. You know, I never was, Uh, bowled over by him but so years later on twitter i got into like a thing with him (laughs) so it's funny you know because so i like i said i didn't think one way or the other i just i i never knew people disliked him feverishly you know i didn't know that so this was completely unrelated to comic books but we're watching basketball like i used to be a big san antonio spurs fan obviously like i'm a jersey guy all the way but spurs i was like a big fan because i love david robinson growing up and he was my favorite player so i was you know rooting on the spurs on twitter and whatever i said in one point he got so inflamed that he was like going after me on twitter when we were going back and forth and i and i didn't i'm like wait is this the same rob Liefeld that like my friend liked his artwork when i was a kid yeah that's the same guy he came after us in our first year of doing this podcast and he just came after us again this last oh, week. he did yes <laughs> You can't leave us alone, but it's amazing. No matter what sphere of fandom, if you disagree with him, he will tear you to pieces. Oh, God. I didn't but did know he block you, like Jay? Did he block I'm, you? You know what? I'm pretty sure he probably did. And but I, I never, I've been blocked by uh, Charles in Charge. So I feel like you're never going to get better than that. Once you get blocked by Scott oh. Mayo. It's that like, is oh, man, amazing. Man. Yes. Oh, Look at God. you, Jay, racking him up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, that, I'm so happy to hear that. That just affirms everything that we've experienced as well. So oh, this is great. But uh, guys, it's time that we get into the meat of the issue here. We have so much to discuss. I can't wait. We're going to check out our table of contents. So Wizard issue 86 featured a November 1998 cover date and was identified on the spine as the Halloween hoedown issue. <laughs> just for fun. <laughs> Featured a terrifying trio of supernatural covers. The first was a Bernie Wrightson The Punisher cover, spotlighting the character's new demon hunter persona. The second was a Mark Texera cover, teaming up the unlikely trio of Batman, Ghost Rider, and Spawn. So just taking the scary characters from the top publishers. Finally, the third, more rare Kiss cover was by Angel Medina, who was the artist of the Psycho Circus comic. But according to the Wizard Big Book of Covers, it was actually laid out by Joe Quesada, who they reveal would be called upon many times over the years to design covers uncredited, and then they would pass it on to other artists to finish it, which I didn't know about. So that. underhanded. God. Yeah. <laughs> 
But Jay, which of these three covers was your favorite? I mean, it's, it's a no-brainer for me. I love, I mean, they're all great, but the Kiss cover was the, was my favorite, yeah. It's pretty great. I mean, it, it, again, the Joe Casada had a hand in it. That makes it even more special. But Mike, how about you? So, yeah, I remember specifically picking up the Spawn Batman one. But I have to say, now, though, you know, I'm not a Kiss fan in any way. I, at the time, I hated Angel Medina's work, but I, I actually really like that cover now. No clue who the characters are. Even after reading the comic, I'm still confused. <laughs> I keep, you know, teasing and we're going to talk about We're, we're going to help you. We're going to help yeah. you. But I will tell you, this issue also came packed with a Deadpool Zero issue tying into the Deadpool month at Marvel. It's pretty funny. It's him fighting all these supposedly dead loser villains and characters, and he's just making fun of them the whole time. Uh, there's also a Fantastic Four trading card that was just like a painted rendition of the cover of the team's first issue. Inside, there was also a mail-away offer for an X-Men half-issue drawn by Mike Waringo, where the team is hypnotized by Mesmero into thinking they're medieval fantasy characters in a Dungeons & Dragons type world. So they got swords. That issue is so bad. It is so <laughs> bad. The Deadpool one at least is fun, but yeah. that X-Men, oof. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, a lot of people like Mike Waringo, so I think they'll take him however they could get him. Okay. But. Our first cover story, Death Becomes Him, is in an interview with legendary illustrator Bernie Wrightson, who explains how he broke into comics. After showing his samples at a comic book convention in 1968, 19-year-old Wrightson was offered a job by Dick Giordano to draw yes. a book called Nightmaster being written by Denny O'Neill. But he wasn't quite ready for the big time, as Bernie reveals. God, it was bad stuff. Due to this, the DC editors moved him to the House of Secrets, House of Mystery to draw short horror stories, one of which was Swamp Thing, written by Len Wein. Writes and reveals, the response was just incredible. Those books never got much mail. That issue got an awful lot of it. Bernie became an overnight sensation and was soon earning $65 a page, the highest rate in the business in 1972. This lasted for two years as he became the artist of the original ongoing Swamp Thing title. His greatest work, however, is considered to be the 40-page book Frankenstein, where Wrightson illustrated scenes from the original novel by Mary Shelley in incredible detail, a project that took six years to complete before it was eventually published by Marvel in 1983. The artist explains, it's the best thing I've ever done. I don't think anything since has been nearly as good, certainly not as passionate. It's a sad thing to admit, but a little part of the fire inside me died when Frankenstein was done. Wrightson eventually moved from comics into film, providing creature sketches for both Ghostbusters and Ghostbusters 2, Peter Jackson's original pitch for the King Kong remake, and even the Robert Rodriguez 90s teen horror movie The Faculty. Not only that, he also did the comic book adaptation of the Stephen King-George Romero film Creepshow, which led to Bernie providing illustrations for King's Cycle of the Werewolf, and providing sketches for the TV miniseries adaptation of The Stand in 1990. As he explains, I'll make every effort to work with Steve because I'm a big fan of his work and consider him a friend. If he asks a favor, I'll bend over backwards for him. Of course, as we discussed last issue, Wrightson was now drawing the Punisher for Marvel Knights, though his style had certainly changed since the 70s. So, guys, what's your favorite Bernie Wrightson work? What do you think of that list of credits there, Jay? Is there one that oh, are you aware of him? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's phenomenal, especially I knew a lot about him from Ghostbusters. You know, you had mentioned Ghostbusters, which, you know, it's like when you're talented, you could not only do, oh, I'm going to do some comics. I'm going to work on this movie. You know, it's no big thing, right? It's amazing. No, but he did some covers, I believe, like from the 70s of uh, DC. He did Detective 
uh, comics, House of Mystery, you know, House of Secrets, like those covers, especially when I'm at a comic show, when I'm thumbing through, it's like, God, I just like, I can't buy one because I know I want every single issue. And he was responsible for a lot of those to give it that macabre look, you know, which I loved. Yeah, it's pretty wild because I'm certainly aware of his name and you could recognize his style, but like he's just of a generation that passed me by, you know, so like it's so long before me that like I wasn't being exposed to it when I'm becoming a comic book fan. So like I found out like as I was researching, like, oh, he did like an issue of the Shadow comic from DC. I was like, oh, that's awesome. I gotta track that down, you know, but if I knew him for anything, it was this era of the Punisher. Like, like oh, I know, I know Supernatural Punisher with guns, blasting demons. That was Bernie Wrightson. Okay. That's the thing. Like you, when you're, especially when you're deep into reading stuff and you're younger, you may not even pay attention to, you know, who's creating it. And then you find out years later, that's pretty awesome. I, I had no idea he was involved in Ghostbusters till this article, but but Creepshow, like that was one of the first horror movies I ever saw, like that I would consider a horror movie for adults. So uh, yeah, I saw it when I was six or seven. My parents, they were watching some other horror movie, refused to let me watch it. So I stayed upstairs watching TV. They didn't realize it, but it was playing on TV at the time. So I watched that instead. And then I found the graphic novel probably in the early 90s when my dad took me to a convention. I was like blown away. So that's my introduction to him. And then eventually I got Cycle of the Werewolf. But yeah, the Punisher was new to me up till like last year. And and I, it's sad because his Swamp Thing stuff is so awesome. That artwork, it's it's too bad he didn't carry, that that style didn't carry through into well, the Well, he 90s. said, you know, Frankenstein burned him out apparently. Yeah, and that's gorgeous. I have like single issue reprints of that one. And that's that's beautiful stuff. Yeah, I, I found it online just to get a reference point. I was just like, wow, that is just, yes. you can live in, the, in those pictures. Just the, the detail, detail is unbelievable. But hey, the time has finally come, Mike, all right? Because we are going to get into some history and we're going to educate you because our second cover story, The Wizard Q&A with Gene Simmons and Todd McFarlane by Jim McLaughlin documents a truly entertaining conversation between the Demon of Kiss and the Dynamo of Indie Comics who act like a couple of old friends, really. Simmons explains, quote, I tracked him down. I thought this was a guy smart enough to figure out that even though he was doing well at Marvel, maybe he should do it for himself. We talked on the phone and arranged a meeting after a KISS concert in Phoenix. When asked if he and Gene are friends, Todd jokingly responds, Part of it's business, and part of it's just talking on the phone about stupid stuff. So put it somewhere between business associates and lovers. <laughs> <laughs> Further explaining why they are so comfortable around each other, Todd states, quote, In the big picture, he doesn't need me for two seconds. He's got Kiss, and I really don't need him. I've got Spawn. We don't have to do everything together, but there's a couple of things we choose to do together. Gene adds, I really admire Todd. I like that he has his own point of view about what he wants to do and how he wants to do it. I've got to admire something about him. He's not good looking enough to hang around otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> now, in case you were wondering what Gene thought of Spawn... He says, quote, I read it consistently. I like that it has a singular point of view that I don't see anywhere else, and I like it because it's dark, and dark is always cooler than light. He goes on to admit, quote, I was curious enough to pick up the Rob Liefeld, Jim Lee, Heroes Reborn stuff for Marvel. Every so often, Witchblade and the Darkness are interesting, but I won't pick up every one. The Jeff Loeb, Tim Sale, Batman Halloween books are always brave stuff. I love looking at Gene Simmons' poll list here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Other fun tidbits include the fact that Gene had a song called Hate from the Kiss Carnival Souls album, which is one of my favorite all-time Kiss songs, ready to go for the Spawn movie soundtrack. 
quote, but the producers misunderstood. They thought I wanted a million dollars for one song on the soundtrack. Not true at all. Also, Todd admits that he would be open to a Spawn Kiss crossover. I could maybe do something in Spawn with Gene's character, the demon, and do a story that catapults to a Kiss comic. But sadly, this never happens, to my knowledge. So I want to go back for a second, because you mentioned hate. And uh, Gene mentioned about, they thought I wanted a million dollars to have the song in Spawn. But it, that wasn't the case. Like, well, what did you mean, Gene? A million pennies? A million <laughs> pesos, nickels? Pesos. What are you talking? Of course, <laughs> if you were charging them a million dollars. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But the Kiss Psycho Circus comic was successful on its own without the spawn bump. And when asked if it was just the Kiss name that was selling it, Todd replies, like anything, you get them once on the name, but then you have to deliver. I think people are reading it now for the eighth or ninth month in a row. I think they feel they're getting their money's worth. All right. So before we get into Kiss in general, let's talk quickly about the Psycho Circus comic. Jay, were you buying it off the racks at the time? Yeah, I was. I bought the whole series, you know, and I, I enjoyed it. It was it was cool. It was good to see them back in comics you know uh I, of course just from my perspective and i'm just i, I don't want to sound like the crotchety old man but i i loved the marvel kiss comics so it's just very hard to beat those for me because i not only love the artwork but the story just it was really fun for me yeah i, I agree like because I, I actually my nephew-in-law uh he actually gave me the the original you know printed in kiss blood you know yeah. kiss super special Marvel comic. And I was just like, wow, this is amazing. But I had reprints already before that. And yeah, where they are superheroes, where they're kids that transform into Kiss as superheroes, like that's a lot more fun. This has a different vibe to it. So Mike, you read a few issues and first time through, what did you gather from it? Okay, I, I first I have a question. The Marvel okay. ones, are they are they themselves like the band in the comic or is it a different premise? They're, they're not a band. They're just kids in New York. And then they get these talismans and then they transform into the Kiss characters, but there's no music involved. They're okay. just like, you know, these mythic heroic creatures. They battle Doctor Doom at one point. You know, it's, it's classic Marvel superhero stuff from the 70s. Gotcha. Okay, yeah, so this comic, you know, I, I was pleasantly surprised, I have to say. I kind of liked it. It had a, uh, like, an anthology aspect to it. Like, it's a different story, right, every time? Yeah. At least I gathered. Sometimes yeah. the art, I was like, wait, is this the same character? <laughs> <laughs> you know i liked it but I, again i don't know if the, i liked it because it wasn't about the band i was like what where's the what's happening like, the demon shows up at the end of issue one i was like let's be real guys it's not a kiss comic it really yeah. has little to do with kiss yeah it's, it's a horror comic which is very like twilight zone it's gonna have a twist to it somebody's learning a lesson you know mike and i we were talking offline about this like getting into the idea of okay todd mcfarland what does he love to put in his comics like the worst of the worst of humanity right the worst criminals and child abuse and all these things like they're just heavy heavy and that's what this is too it's like people going through stuff they end up at the psycho circus they meet these people and they are avatars for the four who are one these eternal you know creatures who have existed throughout all time that are the kiss characters but they mostly just kind of show up to influence things and they'll like ask you know thought-provoking questions to the individual and stuff and yeah i feel really, like they're like like the judges of of humanity right like yeah. they're there to judge who who you are as a human it's it's an interesting concept to and and their visuals are great kiss has great visuals so i, I will say too the one thing for kiss fans and jay maybe you recall this is they did put a 
a lot of Easter eggs for Kiss fans because there was always graffiti on alley brick walls. You know, it would be a Kiss title of a song or an album. And we were always, you know, looking out for stuff like that, you know, because it's like, I wonder if they're going to actually tie it back to the stuff I know, you know? <laughs> yeah. And so I'm curious, Mike, just with this being your introduction to Kiss, what don't you understand about the band's persona then? Because you're just like, well, what are they then? Why are they like this? Like, what is your question? Yeah, well, like, I, I get Gene Simmons just seems like, I, I get him. I, I, It's like the one guy I know from the band. I, You know, he's just the cool looking demon. He's got the long tongue. I, I just don't, like, what's the star guy? Like, we got two guys with star things on it. One well, you have like, the, the star child. Well, cool, you have very... one guy with one star and then another guy with kind of two stars. Well, yeah, and that's then you have the a space cat. man. The cat man, the be he's like the leader of the beasts. And, and yeah. so is, this is why I was wondering, I was going into this thinking, okay, there's a whole story probably behind each character, but there isn't, at least through this comic. And so I'm wondering to you guys, is there like an actual story behind it? Well, so each yeah. member of the band, when they started out, they just got into this thing where they said, well, why don't we try the makeup thing? The New York Dolls were like this, you know, early punk band in New York, and they were wearing like all women's makeup. There's actually a picture of the Kiss members wearing like more feminine makeup at first. And they're like, this isn't working. So they started to develop characters. So Paul Stanley puts this star, you know, on his eye because he wanted to be the ultimate rock star. Like that was his idea. He's like, I'm going to be, you know, the main guy on stage. And Ace Freely is... He was a spacey guy. Like he made up this whole, he was the one with the most mythology. Cause he's like, I'm from Jendel. It's a planet in another solar system. And, and, and he, he was always drunk. So he was like stumbling around the stage. You know, he's just like, he looked like he was an alien. But he, but he loved, yeah, he loved sci-fi and stuff also. So no. it, you know, the whole spaceman thing, it just all that together, you know, created his character. <laughs> We, we all created our own characters, and basically they're all our alter egos, you know. I'm, I was always fascinated with science fiction and space travel, you know. Gene was always uh, into old monster films and stuff. And But I like that they had all that stuff behind them, you know. And, you know, like, I guess Peter was sly like a cat. I don't know. I, I, I have no I, idea. Is he the drummer? Is yeah. he the drummer? Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, yeah. Well, I will say, like, the other thing is, uh, briefly, this is just a fun piece of Kiss trivia. Paul had to change his makeup because their record producer is like, what is this star thing? No, no, no. You want to steal the ladies' hearts. You're going to be the bandit. <laughs> and so he drew, like, a domino mask on his face. That was his look. And it was just like, no. <laughs> yeah, it, it didn't fun. work. But yeah, so there's those mythologies that built up when nobody knew what they looked like without the makeup, you know, in the 70s. So it was all these, like, you'd hear all these rumors about them and whatever. And then they did a movie in the 70s, right about the time that the Kiss comic is coming out, Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park, where they were superheroes. It was produced by Hanna-Barbera, so it was just a live-action cartoon. And so now they had the talismans that were in the comic. That's what gave them their powers. You know, Paul could shoot a laser out of his eye. You know, they kind of like built their whole lore as they were, you know, going on in years in the band. Like there was always stuff that kind of just, oh, now this is part of our whole history, you know, and it may not have been the intention at first necessarily, but it worked out really well. <laughs> yeah, because now they could make the toys and they could yeah. make everything else. And the kids like you see the, just the visual. And you're just like, well, yeah, this is cool. Like, I just like this. And so, they, yeah, they. I remember all through the 90s, especially as they were coming back around, you know, there was, you know, so much kiss, like even just in random movies, like can't.
can't hardly wait if you remember that movie like all of a sudden they have the kiss at mcfarland action figures and these nerds are planning how yeah. they're going to infiltrate this party i'm just like what like <laughs> everywhere you looked any other questions mike before we move on I'm sure I have a ton. You'll just have to give me a playlist. You know what? Send me a playlist. Then I can Do get it. into it. Well, that's I what I want sure. to ask before we go out here. Jay, if you had to pick just a favorite Kiss album just off the top of your head, what do you, what's your go-to? Or maybe top two, top three? So I have a favorite Kiss song and a favorite Kiss album. Okay. So my favorite Kiss song is Deuce. And my favorite Kiss album is Creatures of the Night because from top to bottom, it is the most listenable, in my opinion, the most listenable, you know, out of all of it. Because like you guys were saying before, sometimes you'll get you'll get to like great expectations and some people are like, this isn't for me. It has a children's choir in it. Yeah, I I like it, you know, but, you know, but when you want a just a hard rocking album from top to bottom, Creatures of the Night, you're not going to get any better than that. It's beautiful. I will say my my favorite album just is Love Gun. I always go to Love Gun. To me, it was just like when the band coalesced and then right after that, they start falling apart. But that was like every member of the band sings at least one song on the album and it's just got the iconography of the cover, all of that. But I do love total opposite end of their career. They did an album called Sonic boom yeah uh, which is just like they, they were saying we're going back to classic kiss sound and they produced it themselves and there was a whole tie-in with walmart there was all this kiss merch everywhere but i saw them on that tour like four or five times i went to jersey to see them i took my family from jersey to go see them i mean it was it was awesome so like i just i love that tour i love all the songs on that album that's the top to bottom for me where i'm just like love it love it anyway mike we, we will educate you we'll send some stuff we'll try to find the harder tracks for you like i said hate from carnival of souls which is the kind of you know they're trying to do an alternative metal album you might like that one so. i might like I, I know one song and it's uh the rock and roll one uh yeah. rock and roll night and day i don't even know what it's called yeah <laughs> i'm so bad all right what uh, i now the next article is strange brew which i would say is probably the biggest halloween article of the issue uh they provide uh, concept sketches for the collaboration between chaos comics and marvel comics called the supernaturals in which brian Polito and his team are taking the classic marvel monsters of the 70s and reinventing them for the 90s in a four issue miniseries the setup of the supernaturals involves the chaos event which wipes all superheroes from the face of the earth and leaves only Marvel's freaks to save the day from the evil conqueror Jack-O-Lantern, a flaming pumpkin-headed ghoul who is trying to drive everyone to be as insane as he is. The group includes reimagined versions of uh, a lot of characters. So the first is Brother Voodoo, who looks very Spawn-like as the de facto leader of the team. And this is my favorite part. He's a 22-year-old R&B music producer who can possess up to three people at a time with his mystic Loa medallion. 
<laughs> uh, then we have Black Cat, who does not fit here, in my opinion, a Burnett 20-year-old campaign advisor to political candidates who find themselves winning thanks to her supernatural luck-based powers. This makes zero sense already. <laughs> uh, Gargoyle, a 17-year-old jock with a charmed life who was the subject of experimentation by a cult that turned him into a hulking living stone gargoyle. Yay, that's a good one. Satana a 19-year-old runaway model who has a near-death experience and became possessed by the spirit of the demon sorceress, even though she's a deeply religious good girl. Then we have Werewolf by Night. He's a fast-talking, pop-culture-obsessed, 10th-degree black belt who loves his furry alter ego. And finally, Ghost Rider is Johnny Blaze, now a 19-year-old BMX biking extreme sports athlete with a bad attitude. Polito reveals... Why Ghost Rider has not been updated in any way in terms of design, I defy anyone to say his design could be improved. He's a flaming skull in a leather jacket on a motorcycle. How perfect is that? So which of these redesigns is your favorite, guys? And if you've read the comic, what did you think of it? What do you say, Jay? Who's looking good here? So I like Werewolf by Night because I relate, but... Um... <laughs> <laughs> the one I want to be with is Satana because, you know, I just like such a fan of the look in, I mean, I know this is a redesign, but in the seventies, like just the look of her on some of those covers. So I, I'm just going to go with that. That's awesome. Uh, I, I, I like in this case because Jack-O-Lantern is generally a Spider-Man villain who rides one of those, what, what were those things called back in the day, Jay? Do you remember that they were the board with the ball in the middle and then you could hop on them? Oh, yeah. Like, they were, oh you would God. just bounce on them. I always yeah. ask people, I forget the name of those. I know. Things. Anyway, but so Jack-O-Lantern here, though, he just looks like Lord Pumpkin from the Ultraverse comics, and I love Lord Pumpkin, so I'm like, okay, you stole that look. He's just got a flaming head. He's got Victorian garb on with a cape. Like, he looks awesome. So, I mean, he was my favorite here. Mike, you took a read or did you already own these comics, right? I, I had the first issue, so I pulled it out. What's funny is the description of it all. It doesn't like it doesn't quite match up to the first issue. Like I was kind of like, what's the deal with Black Cat and why is she in this? Like they don't really show you what she can do. So she made no sense to me, even though I guess she has supernatural powers in this universe. I, I like the redesigns. I like his I like the art, to be honest. I, I really like a lot about this i like how brother voodoo looks i just did not understand why he was a music producer i could not stop laughing <laughs> you know i know there's nothing cool about that um werewolf by night they're they're cool i love these characters this is my this is my thing this is like what i i love uh greg capullo does a great cover for this comic but i i cannot find it anywhere although i really only look in dollar bins and 50 cent bins so i can i but i'm i'm dying to get a copy of that cover um okay. i don't know I think it's fun. It's fun. It's harmless 90s fun. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely not deep in any way. Like, trying to read yeah. through this, I was just kind of like, so they're just assembling to assemble. They talk about that there was a chaos event that happened 13 years earlier already, and now it's happening again, but you don't ever get really, like, that story. Like, I don't know. It, it was just kind of like, we're together, and we all make quips, and we all have bad attitudes because it's the 90s, and then we're going to fight this bad guy and win. You're like, okay, thanks, But guys. the bad guy the bad guy only shows up on the last page. Like, yeah. that's the big reveal. <laughs> it's like, oh, my God. He's on the cover. There's nothing shocking <laughs> about that last page reveal. <laughs> but speaking of bad guys, Bad Company is our next article, and it's Wizard's attempt to stir up more controversy with readers by ranking the 
10 most dangerous villains in comics and then pitting them against each other until only one remains. So Bullseye comes in at number 10 because he's only human, but he has deadly accuracy and the ability to make anything a weapon. In the number nine spot is Sabretooth, who they say would best Bullseye in a battle because of his healing factor and ferocity. Number eight is Carnage, whose weakness they identify as, quote, erratic thinking that makes him unpredictable, even to himself. But because he can manifest long-range weapons at will with his symbiotic skin, he'd make short work of the previous two villains. So that's the thing. They, they say, how would they stack up against all the people that came before them? Number seven is the Joker. Now, it's said that he would defeat any opponent with his elaborate death traps, even Carnage, who matches the Clown Prince of Crime for insanity but not cunning. Uh, Rachel Ghoul comes in at number six due to his strategizing mind and ability to regenerate using his Lazarus Pit. You get hurt, you're back in the fight. Doomsday starts out the top five due to his ability to return from the dead, now immune to the last thing that killed him. Wizard imagines, though, I love this, that when the brute kills Carnage, Doomsday would bond with the symbiote himself to become a being known as Massacre. <laughs> it's so 90s. Next up, Thanos rises above the rest to number four due to his brilliant mind, near invulnerability, and ruthlessness. He wouldn't have to best Doomsday in a fight, he would just drop the behemoth in a black hole and be done with him. Magneto ends up at number three due to his control of all things related to magnetism, including an electromagnetic pulse that could render Thanos' gauntlets useless, giving the mutant time to eliminate his foe. Yet, Wizard thinks Lex Luthor could best Magneto by posing as a mutant to join forces with the Master of Magneto magnetism, then lure him into a death trap filled with unbreakable plastic weapons which he would have no defense against. But who reigns supreme above all villains, guys? Why, it's none other than the winner of the 1998 Wizard Fan Award for Favorite Villain, Victor Von Doom. Wizard cites his nuclear-powered suit of armor, army of Doom bots, time machine, and near mastery of the mystic arts. So why would Dr. Doom beat Lex Luthor? Wizard declares, quote, his mind for strategy is sharper, his scientific capabilities are more advanced, and his resources are inexhaustible. So guys, I see Mike's been shaking his head this whole time. Agree or disagree? You go first, Jay. Tell us what you think. All right. So, I mean, I, I thought long and hard about this. And honestly, I love Dr. Doom, so I'm not disagreeing. But there's one kind of thing that they didn't necessarily account for. Uh, and that is the fact that if Rachel Ghoul can rejuvenate, you know, and, and have his uh, Lazarus pit, and somehow there's always a Lazarus pit. If you get rid of a Lazarus pit, there's another Lazarus pit. So if he could regenerate and come back to life, how could you ever defeat that guy? So, I mean, he's going to come back, you know? So even if you defeat him, he's coming back. So he's not, not defeated. So I'm going Rachel Ghoul. <laughs> Mike, what about I you? Yeah, I, you know, I, I like Doctor Doom too. So that one, I'm not really that upset about. Lex Luthor makes no sense. I get he's manipulative and he's smart and all that, but snap his neck. He's useless. Useless. This shit, what is this? Uh, are we talking about mind games? Are they playing board games? You know, like what? Are, brains then, over brawn. Brains over. You know? I, no, no, no. <laughs> I think it's Doomsday, dude. He killed Superman, and his power literally is. He also doesn't die. They even say it. You can't kill him. He's just gonna come back eventually, and he's always angrier and tougher. He's like the ultimate like villain in terms of un unstoppable. Unstoppable. Yeah, I guess it would be him. But any one of the, I don't know. Yeah, this is all over the place. Magneto makes sense. Thanos makes sense to me. Uh, 
I just Joker's useless too. He's just a goofy. <laughs> <laughs> they just they they criticize so many characters on the side. You didn't even announce. Yeah, we're, we're gonna these. get into that okay. on the mini episode. There is well, a sidebar get... about all the ones who didn't make the cut and why. So so listen to the mini episode and we'll yeah. really get into it there. Yeah. Uh, but as we close out this segment, Jay, you know uh, this is the Halloween issue, which means the annual costume contest is back in a big way. Now we're gonna be doing a full video on our YouTube channel. We'll comment on every costume and we'll show it to everybody but for you as you're looking through all these people dressed up with no place to go what is your favorite cosplay outfit i thought the batgirl one was really good yeah i like that i thought that was great yeah it, de it definitely does have a feeling like it would appear you know in Maybe if they were doing like a 90s reboot, that's about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. At the time, yeah. <laughs> My favorite at the time was the clown one. Because if you're reading the comics, clown in his miniseries gets a head stuck to his arm. And he carries that around for many issues. I, I think it's the whole series. And I, it may even continue to spawn. I can't remember. But the, the this... this costume even has the head the fake head on it's great attention to detail right <laughs> yeah. yeah and hey if they had done that in the movie maybe it would have been better but speaking of the movies it's time that we check out that what was going on getting comics into hollywood with our heroes in motion All right, the top story in the coming attraction section this issue is the announcement of a live-action Tomb Raider movie. Of course, the biggest question is, who will play Lara Croft? And Angelina Jolie is not even mentioned as a possibility at this time. Instead, Wizard is really pushing for Elizabeth Hurley, who had already publicly denied being offered the role. As unbelievable as it sounds, Wizard reports that another source familiar with the production said Paramount was considering Anna Nicole Smith as Lara, a rumor that has irked many diehard fans. Of course, Wizard couldn't resist polling their AOL users to get the opinion of the fans, which found Elizabeth Hurley to be the favorite with 42%, Jennifer Lopez with 18%, Denise Richards with 16%, Natasha Henstridge with 7%, and Sparky Spice from the Spice Girls with 5%. So, did you guys have any investment in the Tomb Raider movie? Are you happy with who ended up playing Tomb Raider? So Tomb Raider, I'm not like a huge gamer, but Tomb Raider was one of the games like I immediate. I think I got PlayStation and it was like the first game I bought. I was obsessed with that game. All I wanted to do was play that game to try to get to the next level, you know, constantly. All my free time was was put into that game. So when the movie started getting uh, tossed around, I'm like, hmm, I don't remember at that time it being like such a big conversation, but. They mentioned Denise Richards. I felt like she could have done a, a good job. I've heard recently she's in these like reality shows where she's like getting drunk and stuff. Like I, I don't pay any attention to that. But just by looks, like aesthetics, she would have been uh, pretty good for that. I just off the subject, I like the 2018 Tomb Raider a lot. Just want to say that. Yeah, with Alicia Vikander. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's cool. Oh, yeah. My brother was always like the top like PC gamer house. He bought everything with your command and conquer, whatever was coming out. But I, I had no interest in Tomb Raider. So when this movie was coming out, I was like, oh, well, that's interesting. But I had never heard of Anna Nicole Smith being in the running. If that <laughs> I don't is remember true, that I was either. like, what? <laughs> I don't remember. 
I remember her being a naked gun 33 and a third, you know? Like, I remember her being naked. That's about it. <laughs> <laughs> Wild things. Oh. Uh, I do want to say, uh, finally, in this issue, there is a Halloween-themed casting call as Wizard imagines a Marvel monster movie based on the Supernatural 70s titles like Tomb of Dracula and all the others that inspired the Supernaturals we were just talking about. So cut, let's kind of explore the stars that they want to transform into creatures of the night. Oh, Jay, it's not Creatures of the Night that we want to talk about, but it's all good. It's all good. Let's get into it here. So, Mike, take us into this first casting. Okay, so the first one up was Al Pacino as Dracula. Uh, Hoo-ah! From Donnie Brasco to the (laughs) Devil's Advocate, Al Pacino rises cheeks above the competition in the badass category. His villains are bad and beautiful. As the Prince of Darkness, Pacino's evil would light the screen. Like they're saying the devil's advocate. I mean, he had, he was in that wheelhouse at this time. He could have given us a real charismatic Dracula. But what do you say, Jay? I mean, I just, I love Pacino. I love big boy Caprice, but I don't know. <laughs> and I love, I love that movie with Keanu Reeves, but I, I don't know if he would be my choice for that. <laughs> well, it would be a different take. That's for yeah, sure. yeah. Yeah. I kind of like it though. I, I'm with you, Adam. That, that's not bad. Yeah. I got to say, I love the next one because for Morbius the Living Vampire it's Morbid time over here with Steve Buscemi I mean they're showing a picture of him from Airheads in his rocker look but he could totally do it man he already has kind of the sunken eyes like the ghoulish look and he just like put some white face paint on him again I'm not saying traditional like kind of like mopey Morbius you know I'm, this would definitely be a quirky Morbius but he would be fun guys <laughs> all right yeah it's it's okay that era of uh steve buscemi i think works but ne- yeah. like we could never use like the yeah. past 20 years buscemi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah agreed all right next is patrick swayze as werewolf by night boggles my mind i have to say <laughs> they're showing him looking a little shaggy that's a, they, they can't think this is what they always do they find a picture that's like it kind of looks like him let's just cast that guy this makes sense. I, i'm trying to think of his most feral performance you know like where has he really gotten gritty and i don't know if he's ever ghost he's really gritty oh, and maybe ghost. point point break or something yeah, that's break. Probably the closest. Yeah. Yeah. yeah here's another one we're going devilish here and they want to get weird and crazy christopher walken as mephisto <laughs> Am I the devil? I don't know. You know, like <laughs> be interesting to see what he. I, I would. I would have accepted it back then. I would yeah. because I loved him from Dead Zone and even the Prophecy movies. So I would have yeah. been like, "Oh, of course, this is the best." Yeah, I agree, and I think he's really out there, so he would embrace any type of character like that was weird like that. Now, Jay, you are a huge Elvira fan, and this next character here is the closest we're getting to an Elvira, so we're really going to value your opinion, but for the character of Lilith, they are saying that they want Sigourney Weaver to play this character. What are you thinking? Yeah, I mean, wait, so this is uh, 98 or 99? 98, yeah. Yeah, ni- so I mean, I don't know if I'd necessarily, you know go with Sigourney Weaver, especially because, you know, she's like a hero to us and I just don't put her in that category. So I, it, I wouldn't necessarily go 
in that direction. Maybe like a Liv Tyler or something. Ooh, that'd be oh, interesting, actually. Yeah. Give us Ghost Rider here, Mike. <laughs> David Boreanaz. He's too good looking, right? Like he's too <laughs> I mean, I just I don't I don't know why because they're saying his sulky demeanor and haughty good looks are the choice. That's not choice. what I think of Johnny Blaze. I own oh, no, it's Danny Catch. Maybe that's why. Yeah, okay. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So I but if I'm thinking Danny Catch, I'm thinking a little I mean David Boreanis was younger, but as Angel, he plays this ancient character. So I'd almost look at somebody like Scott Wolf. You know, who's kind of like more like, hey, what's going on? You know, he's just kind of like young 90s guy. And then he transforms into Ghost Rider. And there's a real juxtaposition between those personas, you know. The next one, I think, is actually really good casting. Pierce Brosnan as Doctor Strange. They, they hit the mark with this one. Yeah, really? it's really good. Yeah, no argument there. It's pretty hilarious. They're like, we got to put Blade in this movie. Well, it's just Wesley Snipes. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Finally, they want Gary Oldman for David Hellstrom. Uh, Gary Oldman, I, I, he did a fair amount of work shirtless. So I think he could he could qualify for this. <laughs> yeah. I love Hellstrom, so I'm all for this. Uh, I hated the TV show they did recently. So bring on Gary Oldman as Hellstrom in the MCU. <laughs> I don't care how old he is. Bring it back. Yeah. Well, you know, if he was, uh, there shouldn't be a lot of hype around a supernatural Marvel movie. You know, so far we've only really gotten Werewolf by Night, but Guillermo del Toro's not doing that dark JLA movie anymore, that dark Justice League. Maybe he'll come over to Marvel. But in the meantime, we want to talk about a couple other guys who have the hype behind him, and that is Jim and Todd and their hype machine. So guys, we've heard plenty from Todd McFarlane already in this issue, but the most shocking bit of hype I feel this time around is the announcement that DC buys Wildstorm. Yes, Jim Lee is selling his Image Comics-based imprints to DC Comics and will be publishing his titles through that Warner Brothers-owned company starting in 1999. It's reported that Lee had been, quote, shopping Wildstorm around for some time and DC won out because, quote, they allowed Wildstorm to continue publishing as is. Now, it should be noted, actually, that Jim himself is not interviewed or quoted in this piece. Instead, it's an unnamed source that's confirming the sale. Of course, the Wizard eventually runs cover declaring dc buys jim lee and they get the details you know from the man himself but do you, do you have any recollection of hearing this news at the time and what you thought i jim do remember that yeah so I, I felt like you know i wasn't a huge fan of a lot of the other imprints you know i was like mostly a dc guy i grew up as D a dc guy and then dabbled in marvel but when they said that you know it was one of these big deals because you didn't often hear of things like that happening, you know, and I remember that being like huge news, especially because, you know, Jim Lee was so renowned, you know, and at that time making that kind of deal is like, hmm, you know, is he selling out like, or is this, is this a good move? Like, you know, at the time you never wanted to say that, oh, well, you know, he's just taking care of his family. You know, you don't, you didn't care about that. You're like, no, I want to be the cool independent guy, not corporate, you know. <laughs> 
Yeah, I thought at the time was just like, oh, Image is in trouble, isn't it? Like, Image must be going under, because I was already not buying any more of their books, you know? Like, there were a few that I was buying in the mid-90s, and now it's late, I'm like, I'm done. And they're like, now he's selling his company? I was like, okay, well, Image might not be around, you know, by the year 2000. But at this point, I didn't even care. I didn't didn't read a single Wildstorm book. Like, I, I read Wildcats when it came out, but I... This was like, oh, who cares? Just another news yeah. day for Mike. Exactly. <laughs> All right, close this out here. All right. Lee considers shortening Divine Right series, explores why the series, which was hyped as being written and drawn by Lee, has had such an infrequent release schedule. See, this is why I could care less. An infrequent schedule. <laughs> In fact, on the previous page, Wizard gave a thumbs down to Lee's promise of a monthly book since the last issue of Divine Right had a February 1998 cover date and nothing had come out since. Lee is adamant, however, that the book is not canceled. Things have come up this year which have prevented my concentrating on the book. Every time the book was late, I felt like crap. I have scenes I can't wait to draw. I'm still very into the book. As a result, Lee's original intent of making it a 25-issue series may be cut back to a 15-issue series. I mean, this is the thing. Like, I think he thought, if I declare I'm doing a monthly book and I'm drawing it again, I'm also writing it, like, people are going to come out in droves. And then I think maybe that first issue probably did okay, but they mentioned here that a lot of people just say it was a confusing book and there was all this, like, you're trying to buy into and you're like, I don't know this. I still look at it and I'm just like, what the fuck is Divine Right? Terrible title. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it was one of those things where it's just like amazing that it went back to his start of Image where all the books were late. And here he was again at the yep. end of his Image run. Same problem. <laughs> just like, it's a great bookend. But anyway, uh, that brings us to our running tally. We got to get the update here. Just so you know, Jay, since the beginning of the podcast, in every issue, we have tracked the number of times that Jim Lee and Todd McFarlane have been mentioned. <laughs> Oh my god. So in this issue, Jim Lee is mentioned seven times, Todd McFarlane five times, which brings our running total to Jim Lee 507 mentions, Todd McFarlane 477. Oh my god. And and Jim has been in the lead for a long time. We keep waiting. When is Todd going to catch up? So time will tell. (laughs) Well, that was fun. uh, But I do have to say, you know, we got to close this thing out in a big way because we have our Jim and Todd tally. Now we're in a competition. The two hosts, we're going to figure out who is the biggest geek in general. So we're checking out our CBIQ. It's the Wizard CBIQ! Now let's play, geeks! Adam, how many points did I have? Do you have that written down? Or- yeah, let me let me grab that here to see what you earned, because I think Just you so got that- 10 last time, okay. is what okay. I recall. So so currently you're in the lead, because I have nothing. Yeah, so Mike 10, Adam 0. <laughs> Yay, I was in the lead for one part of this competition. Let's all remember this moment. <laughs> Before Adam annihilates me. <laughs> Are you ready? Uh, I think I'm ready. Okay. Dream, despair, death, destiny, delirium, desire. Who's the seventh member of Vertigo's The Endless? A, destruction, B, delight, C, definition, or D, dysentery? Oh, this is, it's between the first two, but I think I'm going to go with delight. Uh. I'm sorry, it was destruction. No, I oh, I was leaning towards that, but I was like, maybe delight. Okay, number two. How does Zatanna, DC's mistress of the mystic arts, work her magic? 
A, she uses a wand once possessed by Merlin. B, she draws images in the air with mystic energies. C, she speaks backward. Or D, at $5 the first minute, $2 each additional minute. (laughs) Well, this I know because it's a great gimmick. She speaks backwards. Yes, you got it. All right, three. Tommy Monahan, DC's hitman, lives in the worst neighborhood of Gotham City. It's called A, Hell's Kitchen, B, Suicide Slum, C, The Cauldron, or D, Detroit. <laughs> Poor Detroit. Detroit Rock City, though. We'll get another kiss reference in there. I believe it is Suicide Slum. You are incorrect. No! The Cauldron? The Cauldron. Really? Yes. Okay, let's move on. You'll catch up. You'll catch up. Number four, Doctor Strange once beat a weakened Galactus by A, conjuring up the ghosts of those who have died on all the worlds he's consumed, B, making him super sensitive to his hunger pains, in turn, making him black out, C, mimicking the effects of the ultimate nullifier and destroying Galactus's energy siphoning equipment. Or D, turning that helmet of his sideways. (laughs) Oh, man. All those first three sound like good tactics. I'm going to go with A, though. Oh, yeah. Good one. Correct answer. I want to read that comic. That sounds cool. Yeah, it does. Okay, number five. After being double-crossed by Detective Soames, what did Blockbuster do to the crooked cop I hope you know who they're talking about. Okay. I, th- I think this is from, oh, now no, it's from Nightwing. That's why. Yeah. Okay. Nightwing. Oh, you're right. I do, I do. I do remember it now, but give it to me. I okay. Think that's okay. The answer. A, he murdered his family. B, he broke his neck. C, he made him the patsy for Blockbuster's crimes. D, he had a bunch of guys hold him down and he administered the dreaded trouser waffle twice. <laughs> it is. He broke his neck. But he twisted it backwards, but didn't kill him. He just broke it so his head had to be backwards on his body. Wow, what what era is this? I, this I don't. Nineties Nightwing comic. I know. Do you know? Like, is it issue like twenties? It's, it's, we... it's pretty early on. I early. think. Okay, I read late Nightwing okay. in the two thousands. So, okay, you got that one right. Did I say that number yeah, five? You okay. got correct. Yeah, you're good. Six fat bad guy Lex Luthor had been at one time very dead. How'd he die? A. He was shot by a disgruntled former employee. B. He contracted radiation poisoning. C. He went down in a plane crash. D. He had complications stemming from the 50 pounds of undigested red meat in his colon. Well, uh, that last one would have been uh, pretty fun, but I, I know it was radiation poisoning. Yeah, that's a big one. That, that's How a good ironic. One. Okay, seven. Who was not a member of the Fatal Five, the vile super team that plagued the Legion of Superheroes? A. Therok. B. Persuader. C, Starfinger, or D, Mano? Starfinger. (laughs) I know so little about the Legion. I'm going to try A. A has served me well so far. You were right by saying Starfinger. I thought that was your choice. It was Starfinger. It was, yeah. Number eight, in Akira, what happened to Tetsuo when his powers raged out of control? A, he split into multiple younger versions of himself. B, his skin swelled up, his eyes bugged out, and pop, he was dead. C, he became a mad god, emerged 
all life on earth into one being in hopes of creating a suitable mate. D, he sent out this telepathic shockwave that made people less dumber. Beanie Baby market collapses. Wow. You got to get that joke, kid. Uh, it was a C. B. His skin swelled up, his eyes bugged out, and pop, he was dead. Well, I, well, I, I remember, I've only seen the movie once, and I remember at the end, doesn't he merge into this huge, like, mass of flesh and humanity? I don't know, I guess I, mis- I misunderstood what was happening. That's what I thought. assumed, too. I would have guessed yeah. the same thing. Um, um, my friend was a big fan of it, so. Were you forced to watch it like me? I was forced to watch it over and over Oh, well, it was just my friend put it on, yeah, to sleep over, and I'm just like, I don't care about anime, and I'm just like, this is weird. I'm the same, <laughs> same. Okay, number nine, who was the leader of the original Masters of Evil? A, Baron Zemo, B, Mr. Hyde, C, Loki, or D, Kiki, the foul-mouthed monkey boy? <laughs> wow, the original? I'm going to say Zemo. It had to be yeah, Zemo, right? It is, Yeah. Okay. That one was a give, I feel like, right? Like I was like, I knew it, and then obvious. I questioned it. I was like, is it too obvious? Because it's too obvious. Yeah. I, I felt the same way. Okay. Ten. Ouch. Aquaman had one of his hands gnawed off by a piranha. Which hand? A, left. B, right. C, er, his other left. D, his um other right. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go with B. It's his right. Er. It's his left. Oh, man. Keeping with our kiss conversation, it's the same thing for me with Paul Stanley. Like, I always have to like, like, what side is the star really on? Because he's looking at us. And so it appears on one side, you know, but when he's doing his makeup, anyway. I I, I feel like I need to look that up. I feel like they're wrong. He could be. Yeah. Let's, I mean, what is the harpoon hand? Is it on the left or the right? Like, I feel like when he's facing me, it's on the right and you see the harpoon. He got his right hand taken off in the Jeff Johns run of Brightest Day. So okay. what about? So that's later, but yeah. So we're talking. So maybe in the nineties, it was the left, and then it late. was the left. That blows my mind. I've been reading know. more JLA at the time. I would know that. Yeah, I had the toy, so I I should have known myself, but I almost didn't believe it. I want you to get it right because <laughs> this is rough. I mean, I, I'm uh, not not starting off strong, but that's okay. It's okay. What are we doing? Okay, eleven, eleven. The name of the mysterious entity that comes to claim the lives of all the various speedsters in the DC universe is A. Reverse Flash, B. Kilgore, C. Black Flash, or D. Green Apple Quick Step. Oh, I don't know, because like the two names I don't recognize could be it. But I mean, I'm going to say reverse flash because that's the only one that sounds familiar. But I know that's not right. Sorry, it's not. What was it? The Black Flash. I was reading Flash like a few years after this and went back. Yeah, it's a great run. Okay. Yeah, you should. I know you as the Flash fan, you would know. know. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Number 12. Somebody open a window. When Nightcrawler teleports, what does it smell like? I know this one. (laughs) Really? Okay. A, ammonia. B, brimstone, which is sulfur. C, smoke. Or D, the Wizard World Convention. So many fanboys, so little right guard. (laughs) Well, it's definitely B. Because I, I always remember the, you know, the descriptions when people would say what it smelled like in X-Men comics. So Okay, you got it. Yeah, that one's correct. It was Brimstone. All right, 13. X-X-Man Maggot has a very special diet, but it's not what he eats. It's how. So how's he eat? A, 
through small mouths in his palms, B, by vomiting digestive juices on his food and sucking the melted meal down, C, by absorbing the nutrients from the giant bugs that live in his body, or D, maggot, somebody slapped Scott Lobdell for coming up with this guy. <laughs> I think it is C. Yeah. yeah, it's by absorbing the nutrients from the giant bugs that live in his body. Okay. Disgusting. Yeah, okay. 14. How did Captain Marvel's, the Shazam guy, not the dead Cree dude, parents die? A, they were murdered by that rat bastard Black Adam. B, they were erased from time in zero hour. C, their life energies were absorbed by Dr. Savannah. D, whatever. We just want to know what's up with Captain Marvel Jr.'s new name. Granted, Captain Marvel Jr. is pretty awful, but CM3, geez, maggot laughs at this guy's name. CM3? I've never even heard of that. I mean, there's so many, like, reinterpretations and reboots of Captain Marvel. She's, I know. Like, it's hard to know, but I'm going to say it was, it was C was Dr. Savannah sucked their life energy out. It was A, Black Adam. Black Adam? I would have done... No way. Yeah. I would I would have guessed the same because he's been rebooted and in the movie. It's hard to keep track. Yeah. That, that's I feel like they're cheating at this point. <laughs> well, it's this brief moment in time. I didn't even know there was Captain Marvel in the comics at this moment. Like, where was he? What was he? Did he have his own title? Yeah. Was he on a team? Like, what was he? He had his own title that ran in multiple issues, but I thought it had been canned by 98. Maybe yeah. not. I mean, maybe, but maybe that was the last version of the continuity. Of him. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, number 15, the final one. Who has not assumed the murderous mantle of the Green Goblin? A, Jake Massendel, B, Bart Hamilton, C, Harry Osborn, D, Norman Osborn. You know, aren't comic creators who recycle old characters and tarnish classic stories embarrassed that they use such cheap gimmicks as surprise, he's not dead in the place of quality writing? Gotta get your rant in, huh, wizard? B, because I've never heard that name associated with a goblin. Uh, Jake Massendale. Is, Who is it Jake? That? Maybe that's the trick. Because isn't Jason Massendale? Wasn't he the? He was the one of the hobgoblins at some point. So I was just like, does that count as a goblin? So who's huh. Bart Hamilton? Exactly. Who is? Maybe he was like some fake. Because they they did bring back the goblin multiple times when it wasn't an Osborne. Like just as little trick fakers even before the hobgoblin. So maybe that was it. Why is Norman Osborne listed? Like, is that their joke? Yeah, anyway. So okay, so here's the tally. Are you ready? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And you were worried about being the one that was going to come in under on this tally. Okay, well I have to admit, this one was difficult. This was hard. I, I don't know if I would have gotten that. I would have gotten the Black Flash one. Sorry, Adam. Right, so Mike's in the lead with 10. I'm sitting at 6. That means I got to come back big in two episodes. But next time around, episode 88, Mike is going to be on the chopping block. <laughs> We're going to put him up there and be like, can you survive the CVIQ quiz? Yes. Uh, but Jay, this really has been a great conversation. We're so glad that you could join us. And uh, just your stories and your insights were fantastic. But tell people a little bit about what's going on at Sludge Central, where they could find the Purple Stuff podcast. Yeah, yeah I appreciate you guys having me on. It was a hell of a time. Uh, you guys are a lot of fun. You know, Sludge Central, pre-pandemic, I had uh, a whole pathway that I and a plan of the vision that I wanted to do, and it all fell apart. So I'm hoping at some point I could kind of pick the pieces back 
back up and and get to where I wanted to be with my videos and things like that. But you know, life gets in the way. So the Purple Stuff podcast is available. Um, Matt and I do that once a month. Uh, so you could always check that out. I'm mostly on Instagram now. I don't really do a lot of other. I'm on X, but it's, it's Sludge Central at Sludge Central. And um, hopefully at some point I'll try to bring back my YouTube and we'll see where if I can get some motivation. <laughs> I got to kick my caffeine habit. That's what I have to do. <laughs> Course. let this yeah. this podcast be your inspiration there it is that it will be thanks guys and of course we can't help but get on all the socials so that rob liefeld could come after us so <laughs> find us at wizards comics of course on instagram it's at wizards underscore comics uh we do want to invite you to go over to our youtube channel because we got a lot of new exciting things mike always has a new stack of comics from the the 50 cent and dollar bins he wants to share so we're doing haul videos we have our new comic card crazies series where we're opening up vintage packs of superhero trading cards starting out with the first four series of the marvel universe cards so you'll want to get over there and subscribe of course our interviews that we do on the wizard files are also going up there on youtube as well want to invite you over to patreon.com forward slash wizards comics why why you may ask well do you want a scan of this issue do you want to be able to go through it with us while you're listening you will get that do you want to have it early release sometimes a month before the episode's coming out our patrons are already listening to it and it's uncut there's lots of conversations sometimes we cut out for time and you get to enjoy all of it of course also 90 super cinema where we just talked about the shadow looks like we're going to be talking about batman and robin in february so that will be interesting our patrons get to vote on what they want to hear us uh, get into but there's so much more there that you can check out lots of exclusive content five bucks a month patreon.com forward slash wizards comics you're helping the podcast grow and come to you in many different forms Plus, to show our appreciation, you get a shout-out at the end of every episode, like this. Sound off, Patreon. Nate Clark, Jason Kelly, William Bruce West, Mark Florio, David Fink, Brett Cranfill, Marway, Bruno Cavalcante, David M., Dalibor, J.S., Evan Bryant, Gary Hutcherson, Fernando Pinto, Jeremy Daw, Meltface Killa, Brian Acosta, Steve King, Denim Jedi, Mitchell Hall, Lee Markowitz, Stephen Forshaw, and Mark McDonald. You are all favorites of ours, and we're glad to be a favorite of yours. But hey, until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.